0: In 2017, more than eight Australians every day took their own lives, and almost 2,000 people a day attempted to do so. These are very sobering figures. Hello, and welcome to the Being Well podcast. I'm Jan Orman, and this episode of the podcast is based on a webinar we did earlier in the year about the use of online tools in suicide prevention. One of my guests on the podcast is Dr. Caroline Johnson, a GP from Melbourne with a special interest in mental health and a passion for GP education.
1: Being in general practice for 20 years, I've um, had the very difficult experience of um, losing some patients to suicide. And I know the huge impact it has on um, all of us, including you know families and friends and, and the community. And I think it's um, really important that we re- regularly
0: refresh our skills in this area. Also with us is Dr Fiona Shand. Fiona is a clinical psychologist and senior researcher at the Black Dog Institute. Her research focuses on suicide prevention and on the development of online tools for suicide prevention.
2: I guess um, my research over the last few years has focused very strongly on suicide prevention and working clinically. I also work regularly with um, people who are experiencing suicidal thoughts and and at times who've, who've made suicide attempts even though you know suicide is a rare event um, it's it's an important area of work for anyone who who sees patients in general practice or clinicians who specialize in mental health and i think it's important that what we do in clinical practice is backed up by
0: the research evidence so what has been happening with the suicide rate in australia the peak suicide rate in young people that alarmed us all when it had occurred in the 90s had begun to decline until very recently However, in the last year, suicide rates among young men, men in early middle age and middle-aged women have begun to rise again. Some of our patients are at greater statistical risk than others.
1: The, the advantage of having these statistics is it does make us aware of certain groups where we should have our antennae out even more. I mean, I think that as Fiona alluded to earlier, it's suicide is a relatively rare event in the life of a, a GP. Um, so it's, it's hard to sort of know what to have to be looking out for, but I certainly think um, being aware of certain risk groups is very helpful.
0: Of course, Carolyn's talking about statistical high-risk groups such as Indigenous people, LGBTIQ people, the long-term unemployed, refugees, trauma survivors and so on. So is suicide just a medical issue?
1: Well, I personally think it's it's not at all purely a medical issue. I think um um, there's a lot of sort of social determinants of health that influence people's risk of suicide, and um, I think we often, we know that not everybody who commits suicide has you know a, a medical diagnosis or is receiving treatment. Some of those probably are undiagnosed and should be diagnosed and treated, but I think we have to look much more broadly than just medical, and I think GPs are ideally equipped to do that because of our um, a biopsychosocial approach to healthcare.
0: Fiona. I understand that 95% of people who suicide have a psychiatric condition or psychological distress. Is that right? Yeah. Look, it
2: depends on the type of research you look at. That's certainly the kind of um, figure that uh, they come up with when they do the psychological autopsy studies um, where they go back and they they have a look through um, people's records and they interview uh, family and friends. Um, Other methods produce a slightly lower rate than that. But it's nevertheless still quite high. So so it's clear that although not everyone who has a mental illness is, is at high risk, it's a very strong risk
0: factor. The research tells us that in order to prevent suicide, mental health care delivery needs to be informed, effective, coordinated and accessible. It also says that we need good quality crisis care and good quality aftercare. I guess that's not such a big ask. What else are we told we need? We need to offer a wide range of mental health treatment options, good and timely communication between providers, increased community mental health literacy, including in children, and restricted access to means. There's a research project going on at Black Dog Institute right now called the Lifespan Project that's taking all this information and putting it together. Here's Fiona to tell us about it.
2: So this is um, a project which is based on the idea that if we can implement a number of evidence-based strategies more or less simultaneously within a region, that we're more likely to see um, a reduction in suicide deaths and suicide attempts than if we try single strategies. And certainly a large review of all the evidence-based strategies last year or the year before came up with the same finding that no single strategy is likely to be effective, rather it'll be a combination of strategies. So that's where um, we're focusing a lot of our efforts at the moment. And the Lifespan project has just gone live in our first site. So we are rolling out these nine interventions um, in Newcastle. Uh, Following up from that, we're going to be starting work in the Illawarra and Shoalhaven and then the Central Coast and then Murrumbidgee. So so each of those regions is demographically quite uh, different to, to each other and um and and there's a, a strong research framework around that to see whether we actually are getting the results that we expect to get so we're hoping for around about a 20 percent reduction in suicides over the course of three years or so
0: so the lifespan project aims to tell us where the multiple strands of intervention rolled out in an area all at the same time is a more effective approach in reducing suicide rates than each of those strands delivered on its own. Caroline and I decided to talk about a case study to attempt to illustrate some of the important aspects of assessing someone for suicide risk.
3: Danny's a 27-year-old man living in a rural city in New South Wales. He has a journalism degree but has been unemployed for 2 years. He's never had any employment in the area that he was trained for. He was working in a supermarket before he was made redundant 2 years ago. Several months ago, a long-standing relationship broke up, and he's been since then living with his widowed father. He has sleep disturbance, is socially withdrawn, is drinking more alcohol, and is presenting for treatment of injuries from a motor vehicle accident. Do you would it cross your mind when Danny presented to you that he might be be at risk of suicide? Carolyn, what would you think about Danny if he presented to you and you had this much information?
1: Jan, yes, of course it would um, concern me. Uh, first of all, because he's got symptoms of psychological distress. You know, the, the sleep disturbance. Um, he mentions. Uh, some examples of social isolation, so he's not in the workforce, which is a risk factor for, for developing mental illness, but also for suicide risk. Um, sounds like he might be socially isolated. Obviously, we have to withdraw that a bit more, but he, um, the, the, the issue of being withdrawn is a concern. And clearly, um, substance use, such as alcohol, is also something that
3: puts my antenna up. So it, I get the sense that you'd be asking a few more questions of Danny before you've uh, tended his wounds within that consultation. Absolutely. So I guess it's an interesting question, isn't it? What are the risk factors in warning signs that we're looking for when we're making an assessment of the patient? And we can divide them into those two categories. It's quite useful to divide them into those two categories. Risk factors are statistical associations basically, population-based statistical associations and they include the things that we were talking about earlier like age and gender, social subgroup, economic status but warning signs are different again. They're factors specific to the individual that indicate Imminent risk, and they're the things that we're particularly interested in. Talking about death and suicide, withdrawal from others, which Danny appears to have, a recent stressor. And he had his relationship break up, anger and rage, hopelessness, escalating drug and alcohol use, which Danny is already admitting to, and access to lethal means.
0: So, what else is there to know about Danny? Let's listen again.
3: He didn't have his seatbelt on when. He was in the motor vehicle accident. He was driving after drinking. He has been thinking that life's not worth living lately and I want to know whether that makes any difference to your assessment of Danny's suicide risk. Caroline, what are you thinking now about
1: Danny? I'm certainly much more concerned. Um, I think this is just a reminder of when someone comes in with something that might initially appear unrelated, like a motor vehicle accident, it's always worth asking a few extra questions. Um, And certainly, we've come a long way, haven't we? Then when I first trained more than 20 years ago, um, where we were learning that it's okay to ask people about um, thoughts of whether life was worth living, We, we certainly know now that that's absolutely fine to ask, and in this case, it's clearly very important to have found that out because it's something that needs to be addressed very promptly.
3: So what can we offer Danny at this point? We can certainly offer him our time doesn't matter how many people there are in the waiting room suicidality is a medical emergency would you say so caroline up there with chest pain
1: oh i i think it is definitely an emergency and it's hard sometimes because it's it's hard to work out when you know when do you cross that line that you have to do something instantly versus whether you know you can buy a little bit of time and and obviously you, you have to spend the time to try and dissect that out and find out how imminent and how impulsive a person's feeling
3: it's also really important that you acknowledge his distress. There have been several studies that have shown that one of the worst things that you can do for somebody who um, is telling you that they're so distressed that they think life is not worth living is jolly them on. Start immediately talking about the things that they've got going for them, the things that make their life wor- worth living. It's a knee-jerk response that both in research and anecdotally, is seen to be a great thing for, for um, destroying any engagement that you might be likely to have with your patient. A non-judgmental empathic stance is what's required of us. We need to validate his distress and normalise his suicidal thoughts. Now, some people are shocked when I say that. Are you shocked, Caroline?
1: No not at all Jan I think in my experience the more you can normalize it and get people talking about it the better I mean you know, there's so much stigma associated with these thoughts that people are very, very good at keeping them hidden. And the more that you can, um, you know, show that you're not alarmed and that you're interested and, and caring and compassionate, the more chance you are of having a genuine assessment of risk.
3: Can you give us an example of how you might normalise suicidal thoughts?
1: Well, I, I sometimes say to people that we know um, from you know surveys of, of, of young adults, in this case because he is a young adult, that when we ask young people, you know, have they ever thought that life's worth not? worth living or that they wanted to harm themselves, that very large numbers, you know, often more than 50%, depending on which survey I say it. So I, I say to people, we, we actually know from asking lots of people that this is common, um, um but that, that therefore it's okay to have these thoughts, but what's not okay is to, to just put up with them and not try and do something about them.
3: And it's especially common and normal to have when you're feeling as distressed as you are.
1: So Yes, I think that's a very good statement to make.
3: Yeah. So we also need to do a thorough mental health assessment, of course, and and draw our own attention to any underlying problems. But in the the immediate instance, we need to have something that we can do to help Danny get over this crisis. And that's where safety planning comes into the picture. Assertive follow-up and help with emotional management come later, but we need to talk him through a safety plan
0: safety planning is something that every GP and mental health professional needs to know about.
3: It includes
0: information about crisis intervention, but a whole lot more is involved in a safety plan. This is different from an old-fashioned no-suicide contract, which the research has shown to be of no value at all in suicide prevention.
2: We talked a little while ago about a, a, a recent study of safety planning Um, compared to the the no suicide contract and the safety planning in a randomised control trial was clearly more effective.
0: So what is a safety plan exactly? It's an individualised plan for survival that a suicidal person devises in collaboration with their health professional The idea comes from research done by researchers Barbara Stanley and Gregory Brown in the mid-2000s in emergency departments with people who had presented after suicide attempts. Safety plans are designed to help people reduce their immediate risk of suicidal behavior and self-harm in the face of strong urges by providing predetermined alternative plans of action. They can be developed over several sessions in conjunction with risk assessment. They can be modified over time and represent a therapeutic intervention, one which can be done in primary care environments when patients are expressing suicidal thoughts or intent, or in the emergency department after suicide attempts or episodes of self-harm. So what's in a safety plan? It consists of crisis service contact details, Contact details of support people. Details of scheduled appointments and medications. It also contains a list of triggers for self-harm and suicidal urges so that they can be identified or avoided. A list of warning signs that urges may be developing. A list of helpful strategies identified by the individual that can be used when triggers or warning signs are encountered. And importantly, a list of this person's reasons to live. There are pen and paper templates for safety planning available, and the Beyond Blue website allows you to complete a plan online. But Beyond Blue have also developed a safety planning app called Beyond Now, which allows users to make and update their safety plan on their smartphone, and also send it digitally to their health practitioner. The app works on iPhones or Androids and is available from the relevant app store or from the Beyond Blue website totally free of charge. It really is interesting the things you learn about someone as you collaborate with them in making a safety plan. I asked Caroline how she might begin to talk about safety planning with a patient. I
1: usually talk to people about you know, the the reality that for most people who have harmful thoughts, we've established that they're they're often common, particularly when there's distress. And that often um, the actual next step, which is actually um, self-harming, is a kind of an impulsive step. And you know, that we we do believe that for many people, once they've passed that point, if we can keep them safe, the thought will go away on its own. And in a case like Danny, I've certainly spoken to young men who have exactly that experience. They say, I feel stupid afterwards. I, you know, I kind of realise it was a silly thing to do. It happened at the time. And, you know, that's a really powerful learning thing for them to say, well, isn't it, wouldn't it be great if next time you were in that situation or, you know, that you, you had something better to do than going out and getting drunk and driving in your car. Mm -hmm. Um, And if, if they're engaged in that, then it's very natural to then go on and say, okay, well, here are some very specific structural things that you can do to prepare yourself if, that, if, if that you, you start to feel that level of distress again.
0: There are some other apps worth mentioning that may be useful to help people manage times of significant emotional distress. Have a look at one called Virtual Hope Box. It was designed by the American Department of Veterans Affairs and has some quite helpful content. There is also Music Escape that comes from Queensland University of Technology. That app uses an algorithm to sort the music already on your phone according to the mood associated with it. At times of stress, it may be useful to ask it to play a calming playlist, for example. It can be very helpful for people for whom music is an important part of their emotional lives. So what about the future? Fiona's going to tell us about some of the research that's going on in the digital space around suicide prevention.
2: we have a few um, a few interventions and trials underway at the moment. One of the ones that's been um, that's already been piloted and is currently undergoing a larger research trial is an app called iBobley. Uh it was developed with the Kimberley community in response to very high suicide rates over there. So um, young young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander males have up to high, five times higher risk of suicide than their non-Indigenous peers. Um, and, and one of the aims of, um, of uh, the app, as it is with many e-mental health interventions, is to overcome some of the barriers to getting help. Um, and particularly with our Indigenous um, population, That um, the research shows that only one in ten are likely to have sought help before suicide. So there are some really substantial barriers that have been reported in the the literature. Um, Often that's around concerns about confidentiality in smaller communities, um, services being too difficult to access, cost, but a big one is really shame and and not really knowing um, how to talk about what they're going through. So, um, in fact, some of the feedback that we got from the pilot study of iBobly over in the Kimberley was that going through the app, actually gave some of the young people uh, the words to talk about their distress, their thoughts, their feelings um, if they did want to go and seek face-to-face help. So, so in some ways it may be a, a stepping stone between you know, doing nothing and, and actually getting some face-to-face help. So uh, we ran a small randomised control trial and using a, a weightless control condition, um, and, and what we found were um, some reductions in suicidal thinking, and uh, substantial reductions in um, depression and psychological distress. So on that basis, we made some modifications to the app, um, so that we're hoping it's suitable for a um, you know a, a, a larger national audience. And that trial is currently recruiting. The app uses acceptance and commitment therapy, which is a you know third generation CBT type intervention. Um, the evidence is still out for acceptance and commitment therapy in suicide prevention, but um, certainly it was the, the intervention that was deemed to be most acceptable by the community that we were working with. There, There is also some research which looks at the impact of um, um, depression treatments, online depression treatments, on suicidality. And um, the first study that I want to talk about is Mood Gym. And what happened in this study was that people who called up to Lifeline um, were offered either, sorry, they were randomized either to get um, Mood Gym on its own, um, Mood Gym with a tracking phone call, a tracking phone call only, which was a weekly quick check-in, um, or no intervention. So just select that initial Lifeline call. And, and again, what we found was that not only did, did their depression improve, but that their suicidal ideation improved um, more rapidly and, and more substantially in the groups who got the, the, the mood gym intervention as well. The final study I wanted to talk about um, is a study, uh, a quality assurance study using GP records of the This Way Up intervention, um, which again is a treatment for depression. And again, what they found coming out of those records was that um, not only did uh, people improve on their depression measure, but they also had reductions in suicidal thinking. So, so there is some evidence that if you treat um, depression using online CBT, you also get improvements in in suicidality Uh, and that's certainly consistent with a lot of the, the evidence coming out now about treating risk factors as a way of preventing suicide.
0: So, there it is. Digital interventions for suicide prevention are here already and there's more to come. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Being Well podcast series. We hope it's been helpful. If you've enjoyed it and would like to hear more, you can find other episodes on the Black Dog Institute website. I'll be looking forward to the next time we meet.